2: Welcome to the program. It's Friday. Another week has gone by. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to the word to stand on for life, a show dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or life questions or pretty much whatever is on your heart. We'll just tell you what the word of God says and hopefully help you get through anything that you're going through. And if you're just curious, that's great, too. We love your calls. You can call us at two one zero. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. That's three four zero ninety five eighty five. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll free at 877 630 KSLR. Numerically, that's 630 5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send in your questions that way as well. If you're driving in your car, we like to remind you every day that the safest way to call is use the hands-free feature of your phone using the KSLR mobile app. It is also free. And uh, all you have to do is hit one banner. It says call now and the phone will do the rest. All you have to do is, uh, or rather you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. There's a lot going on this weekend. Uh, but I want to start with an update on KUKA. We asked yesterday, Paula and I did, for uh, for a lot of prayer. Uh, KUKA is certainly not out of the woods yet, but uh, they, they had to stop the surgery yesterday. Um, she just couldn't take it anymore. They really didn't think she would survive the night. Now, KUKA, for those of you who didn't hear yesterday's program, uh, is a 92-year-old woman in our fellowship, been here for like 22 years, um, just uh, the heart, one of the hearts of our church. Um, And uh, they didn't think she would survived the night last night. She did. They had to take her back into surgery today. And we're told that today, to everybody's surprise, that she went through the surgery really, really well. So she is recovering now. And so thank you for your prayers. The Lord has been generous with his mercy uh, on us. At the same time, we want God's will to be done. uh, But pray that she doesn't really have any pain and um, that um, that the Lord's will be done. We want her to stick around for a while, and I think that she wants us to stick around for a while as well. Uh, but um, the Lord's will be done. Thank you so much for your prayers. And I, I told you um, yesterday, I'll tell you today for Monday, that uh, we'll keep you posted uh, and let you know how the Lord is answering our prayers. So thank you for your prayers. We love this woman with all of our heart. Um, she has a big family here at our church. And uh, what a blessing they have all been. So pray for them that the Lord would sustain them through these very, very difficult days. A lot going on, I said uh, a moment ago, uh, tonight I'll be teaching uh, out of Hebrews chapter 11. We are in the Hall of Fame of Faith chapter. That's what it's become known as. Uh, Tonight, just one verse, verse 7, we're going to talk about Noah. Noah is one of my favorite Bible characters. Uh, I stand in awe of of his ministry uh, to the Lord, the way he took a stand against the world. So tonight we're going to just talk about Noah. I'm going very, very slowly through Hebrews 11 because I want us to see uh, what these people recognized for, not only what they recognized for, but who their faith was in, why it was so legitimate. And um, I'll also be able to talk as we go through uh, these characters about some of their weaknesses, which the Bible doesn't do, at least not in Hebrews 11. I love the fact that in Hebrews 11, you've got all these people, some of whom really, really messed up in this world. I mean, some of them really, really messed up. And yet there isn't a single mention in Hebrews 11 of a deficiency at all. Not One. And that's the way heaven views Christians. Think about it. I've messed up so many times. Uh, Certainly before I was a Christian, I messed up times after I was a Christian. Same thing is true for every one of you. And yet in heaven, all they're recognizing are the things that you did by faith, which is pleasing to God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Conversely, when we walk by faith, Jesus is smiling at us. So Hebrews eleven seven tonight is our only verse. I'm going to be in Luke chapter 16, finishing it. Uh, the story, not a parable, the true story of a rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus a beggar. Uh, they died on the same day. One went to paradise. Uh, the other went to a place of torment. Uh, and it's a very important study, especially with Jesus headed to the cross and in the middle of all of the parables Jesus has been telling, really against or about the Pharisees. Uh, so we're going to do that, finishing chapter 16 on Sunday. One other comment, and I said this to my church a half dozen times trying to prepare them. Next Sunday, a week from this weekend, uh, I'll be doing what I think is the single most difficult study in the New Testament. Now, uh, the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 17. And uh, I know... The overwhelming majority of you who listen to this program do not come to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. But uh, I think it's a message that everybody needs to hear. So uh, if you can watch it live stream uh, a week from Sunday, great. If you can't, we'll keep it on our website, of course, and all that information is for free. Uh, but but I think it's it's the single most difficult chapter in the New Testament and often the one that is most overlooked by Christians. So get ready for a really difficult one uh next week. Okay, three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Jose. Uh Pastor Ron, how can we know if someone is saved or not? Jose, you see, that's part of our problem. We want to know, but we can know. Now we can make a guess. Uh we can look at their life and we can see what kind of fruit is coming from their life. Uh and uh you know my my M.O. has always been to treat people the way they're acting. If someone acts like they're saved, I treat them like they're saved. If someone isn't acting like they're saved, then I treat them like they're not saved. But we don't need to know. And I think that's something that we really lose sight of. We we look at people, they made a profession of faith, they do these horrible things, uh, and yet the truth of the matter is, is only God knows their heart. That's why we're told not to judge hearts. Certainly we're told to judge behavior. That's the loving thing to do. But we're never to judge hearts. And here's what I can say, Jose: If someone says they're saved, but they're living like they're not, if they die in that condition, they probably never belong to Christ in the first place in spite of what they said with their mouth. Not only is that true, but I also know that if they ever really were saved, and now they're Walking away from God, they've they've turned their back on him completely. Uh, If they're really his, God will bring them back. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. Now, I think everybody understands that. The problem is we don't like all that gray area in between. Jose, there's only one person on this planet that I'm 100% sure is saved, and that's me. Now, I'm nine 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 percent sure that Paul is saved. But beyond that, um, it's between the person and God. We need to be content to leave those kind of questions in God's hand. You know, we had a question, uh, I I can't remember whether it was early this week or or the latter part of last week now, but uh, a question about um, a man named Joshua Harris who, who became quite famous as a Christian author when he was uh, in his very early 20s, he wrote a book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and then there was a follow-up uh, about uh, courting as opposed to dating. I uh, made a lot of money on that book. We know that um, through his 20s, he was uh, a youth pastor. Then as he hit into his 30s, he was a pastor of a reformed um, a mega church. It was a very, very large church, and and he certainly looked to be saved. Now, it's kind of hard for us to say, well, he was never saved. First John 2.19 says that they went out from us because they were never really part of us. But his life looked really saved. So how do we look at that? Here's how we view it. If he really is saved, in spite of turning his back, he said, I am no longer Christian. It couldn't be more clear. If he dies in that condition, then he really never was saved. If he comes back to Jesus... Then Jesus, who was faithful to complete the work, brought him back. And if you think about the disciples, Jose, Judas may have looked like the most saved. He was the one given the responsibility of taking care of the money bag, the treasury. When Jesus said, One of you will betray me, the other 11 didn't say, It was Judas. We knew it was Judas. In fact, John and Peter, both in their epistles late in their lives, were still agonizing over, how could we have not known about Judas? And yet Judas never belonged to the Lord. So I think we need to distance ourselves from the need to know. And as I said, Jose, I think the best way for us to deal with issues like this is simply to treat people or respond to people according to the way they're living their lives. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. I'm a really positive person in 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 that way. I, I want to believe the best about people. And the way I believe the best about them is if they're acting like they're saved. It would be terrible. I know I'm interrupting myself here, Jose, but this is important. I'm a pastor. And I've seen a lot of people, a lot of people fall away from God completely. I've seen them make choices that were devastating to, to, to them, to other people, it's choices that have broken my heart. I have shed so many tears, and yet I can't let that keep me from rejoicing with those who appear to be Christians. Imagine how cynical it would be if every time somebody answered an invitation under my breath, I'm saying, I hope they mean it hope they're not like so-and-so who said the same thing and they walked away from the Lord. We have to believe the best. Love always trusts. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So here's what we do. We treat people according to the way they are living their lives, not just what they say, but the way they're living their lives. I'll say one final thought on this. If somebody in your life, if, if the, the, the motive behind this question was there's somebody in your life that you thought was saved and now they're living uh, a, a, a godless life. And you want to know, are they saved or are they not saved? Go talk to them. And ask them, say, man, I was, I've was i been praying for you. I thought you were saved and now you're living like this. If they say, well, I'm saved. I accepted Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Then you could look him in the eye because you love him and say, you know what, I, I, how, how would anybody know that based on the way you're living? And I think more times, rather than just wonder if somebody's saved, Jo'se will say, I think what we really need to do is talk to people face-to-face and ask them the questions. One of the things that I always do, especially when I'm dealing with somebody who's terminally ill somebody who doesn't have a lot of time left there's no time to beat around the bush I just ask him so are you born again is Jesus your Lord and Savior I, I, I want to talk to them about that I want to know it's really painful Jose to do a funeral for somebody that you knew somebody that you loved and cared about and you don't know that they're in heaven that's the worst possible thing and yet, the same thing is, the uh, same thing is that's true. Is that we've we've got, to be honest, at a funeral, we got to tell people, look, I, I don't know. That's Luke chapter sixteen, and we'll be teaching this weekend. So I hope that makes sense to you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. My producer just said it was Dylan that asked the question about uh, Joshua Harris. It was not this week, but last week on Monday. So that was the the reason I use the example. We would love your calls at 340-9585. Here is a question from Marv. He wants to know what my view is on the gap theory, please. Marv, I think it's um, silly. It's not heretical. I think it is a compromise. I think we're trying to uh, find a balance between what we call modern science, you know, the earth is millions or billions of years old. Uh, the, the gap theory is that there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, an indeterminable time. And they really, really stretch the Hebrew language, to try to make a point. Well, you know, those Hebrew words could mean this or could mean that. Marv, this is what's important to understand. The Holy Spirit in recording the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 could not have been more clear And identifying six days as a literal six days, 24-hour days, the morning and the evening, the first day, the morning and the evening, the second day. And it's almost redundant, they say it so many times, and there's no way that you can read the plain meaning of the text without coming away convinced that this was literally a six, 24-hour day creation. And people say, well, what about the, the, the carbon dating? What about the bones that have been found that are millions of years old? Um, human science is flawed. Carbon dating, it, it could be true that God made the earth with the appearance of age. You don't have to buy into that, but it's certainly true. Adam, I'm, certainly, I'm sure, was not an infant when he was born. God would never say to a baby, be fruitful and multiply. So I think the gap theory um, is a waste of time. I think it's a compromise between what the Bible says and the compromises we want to make with the world. One final thought, Marvin, I say this every time I get a question on Genesis. If we don't take the first 11 chapters of Genesis literally read it for what it says, then every major doctrine of the New Testament, every essential doctrine of the New Testament falls apart. If Adam and Eve were not the first two people created by the hand of God, they were not born, they were created by God's hand, the only two people ever to to be so created. If they weren't the first two, then we're not saved. The doctrine Of a sinful nature. The doctrine of redemption means nothing. Original sin is a lie. But even more condemning than that, Mark, is that if Adam and Eve weren't the first two people, then Jesus lied to us because he said they were. And Jesus wasn't speaking in an allegory, he wasn't spiritualizing the creation. He was there. We're told that he's responsible for everything that has been made, was made by him. Not only that, we're told that he holds all things together. That ought to be really simple for us to understand, for us to believe. So I hope that helps. Joshua asked this. um, Oh, good question, Joshua. He said, Jesus said that we're to care for the foreigner and provide for them. Why do so many Christians not understand what he said and want to prevent illegal immigrants from coming to the U S. You know, Joshua, I appreciate the question. You know, it's, it's, um, I've heard this sentiment expressed many, many times. Well, well, they're in need and we're supposed to be welcoming the foreigner. But Jesus also said we're to obey laws and be subject to our leaders. And I think you always have to find the balance. When you read the Bible, we don't read it with a newspaper in the other hand. We have to understand the context. We have to understand to whom uh, the author was writing. We have to understand the historical circumstances around the time. But, you know, we can go all the way back into the Old Testament, the old, the, 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 from the, the dispersion after the Tower of Babel, and people were separated. And those people became nations. And, and nations fight We live in a time that's very, very dangerous. We have citizenship laws that are completely ignored by our lawmakers, by our politicians. So what's the balance? Joshua, I don't know. Here's, I think, the way that you and I can bridge this gap. Rather than say, I'm for illegal immigration, we ought to just open the borders for everybody. What we can do, and we're responsible, by the way, to God to do this, is when we come into contact with someone who needs help, we help them. We don't try to beat the bandwagon for uh, the the nation to help them. We help them. We stop looking for the nation to solve our problems. Um, you know, we'll have a a full house in church, three services on Sunday. We'll have a lot of people here tonight. And if there is somebody who's in this country illegally, I don't care about that. They're at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio. And we're going to do our best to love them. We're going to do our best to proclaim the word to them. They're going to look around and know that God is in this place. And knowing my church as well as I do, somebody's going to invite them to coffee or somebody's going to invite them to, to come over and let's talk or let's just kind of hang out. We want to get to know you a little bit better. And, and you know what? That's, what we, that's our job as Christians. But it is not our job to live like our nation is Christian because it's not. And if a nation doesn't have laws, then there's nothing but chaos. The chaos is only heightened by the fact that we have laws that nobody pays any attention to. So Joshua, keep your heart For the illegal immigrants. Help them whenever you can. But don't confuse the issue with a national issue or a, a national mandate. Because God's not speaking to the United States of America. He's speaking to you and he's speaking to me. I ask sometimes because a lot of Christians are very conservative politically and Supportive of a president who often embarrasses us, they almost make this issue biblical in scope. And I've had to remind them many, many times over the years that Jesus said that we love the stranger. That doesn't mean that we. say nothing at all about the way they came. It doesn't mean that if we want our immigration laws to be enforced, that we're bad people. It just means that there has to be some sort of control. You know what I find interesting, Joshua, is that, um, let's reverse this for a moment. Mexico and our neighbors to the south are draconian in their immigration laws. We couldn't just go into Mexico. We couldn't just go into other countries, Central or South America. We certainly couldn't go to countries in the Far East, the Middle East, and just decide we want to settle down expect to be welcomed. It seems to be unique to the West, and by that I mean Europe and the United States, Canada. It seems to be unique to us that we've got this guilt hanging over our heads, like we've got to take care of. Of all the people in the world, we're not asked by God to do that. We're only asked by God to take care of the people that come across our path. So before you're critical of Christians who want immigration laws to be enforced, what do you do the next time? What did you do the last time you drove by a man or woman on the side of the freeway with a need food, homeless sign. Did you stop giving money? See, this isn't about what the government does. These are things that are all and only about what we do, Joshua. Hope that makes sense to you. Balance, balance, balance always is the key. I think we're inside two minutes now for this this half of the program. We've Phones have been quiet. We'd love your light phone calls. Here's a quick question I can take from Reed. He says, how often should we take communion? We're not told how often we should take it. Uh, Reed, take it as often as you want. Jesus just said, whenever you do, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, here at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio, we do it once a month, the first Sunday of every month. Uh, we have some special communion services um, on Wednesday nights or Friday nights sometimes. But generally, it's just whenever you do it, do it, remembering what the Lord has done for you. Um communion can be done every day. It just has to mean something. It can be done once a week, once a month. Your choice. We have 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585. Free live calls and questions are toll free. eight seven seven six three zero kslr I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes.
1: back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh
2: welcome back to the second half of our Friday show 340-9585 your live calls and questions the phones have been quiet not unusual for a Friday here is a question from Wilson uh, he says I struggle with any sense of eschatology, because it appears Jesus was wrong when he spoke about his second coming in Matthew twenty four thirty four. Can you help? Uh, for the audience, eschatology, for those of you who don't know, is simply the study of end times. So what Wilson is struggling with is is the, the end of the world, how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. Um, but, but Wilson, just a quick word to you. Any time that you think it appears Jesus was wrong, well then it's not him who was wrong, it's you who, who was wrong. I think that's one of the great, great hermeneutic keys to really understanding our Bible. There has to be those times when we read something and say, "Wait a minute, that can't be true based on who Jesus is, based on his character, based on what he's done, based on other promises he's made to us in his word." That can't be true. I think if you get to that place where you say, well, Jesus can't be wrong, so my understanding is wrong, I think that's really important uh, in, in helping us to learn to, to rightly divide the Word of God. Let me read Matthew 24, 34, and I'll help you, uh, Wilson, with, with uh, your um, what you're struggling with. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Now remember, this is the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Jesus is talking... In a very Jewish context, to his disciples, and he says, "I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened." Now, what are the things that will will are, are going to happen? Well, look at the verses before; it's the signs of the end, the blood moons, the the, the horrible great tribulation, and and Jesus telling his disciples that. I tell you the truth, that's a double amen, it's a verily, verily in the King James. This generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. And the misunderstanding, Wilson, that I think you're struggling with, is that you think he was talking to Peter or to James or to John or the other disciples and saying, this generation, you will not die until all of these things have happened. And of course, we know that all of those disciples did die. So what did he mean by generation? There's all kinds of crazy, crazy things. Well, a generation, some say in a Jewish construct, is 100 years. Others will say generation is 40 years. Um, uh, Others have allegorized this passage to mean, well, you know, uh, the generation that sees Israel return, which is is foreseen in that passage of Scripture. Um, And then they think, well, you know, Israel came back in 1948, so the generation alive there will not pass away. Uh, If that's the case, we're we're really running out of time. So I think the plain meaning of this, Wilson, and I hope this really causes you to, to be relieved, is Jesus is saying that the generation who is alive and who sees the signs that he's talking about in the verses preceding, they will not pass away. Now, we know that's true. Because when the Great Tribulation begins, the Great Tribulation has a limited shelf life. It's only seven years. And because it's only seven years, that generation is certainly going to survive, Well, some will die in, in in judgment, but the idea is the time is short. So the generation who is alive at the time of those signs will not pass away until these things have happened. In other words, once the Great Tribulation starts, they can't escape it. There's no way out those things are going to happen. He could not have meant, thus he did not mean, that he was talking to his disciples. Um, remember, every time you open your Bible, Wilson, Jesus is never wrong. That's one of the things that we have to believe deep in our hearts. And by the way, his track record is pretty good. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Cal asked a question about pastor's uh, Pastor, honor pastors held to a higher standard for judgment, and do they encounter more spiritual warfare? Uh, yes and no. Let me let me explain. Um, Jesus said, "Who much is given, much is required." Uh, and I'll I'll make this personal, Cal. Um, God has given me the gift to teach. He's given me the the, the gift of discernment. Um, he has um, enabled me to understand and to communicate his word. So certainly I'm held to a higher standard regarding living that word than somebody who's, for instance, a new believer. You know, when I'm a brand new believer, I didn't, wasn't held to any kind of standard. I was just sort of feeding my way around, but I've been a pastor now for 24 years. God has given me the privilege of, of leading his sheep, at least this particular little flock And, um, yeah, I'm I'm held to a higher standard. Uh, For me, uh, to to have a a temper tantrum blow up uh, might be a small deal for somebody else. But for me, how can I do that when I've spoken over and over to our church about self-control, being a fruit of the Spirit? How can I lose my temper and get mad and say ugly things to somebody, even at home to Paula? I mean, imagine if I come here and I talk about these are the fruits of the spirit this is how a godly man should behave and yet in private I'm yelling at Paula, I'm mistreating her I'm not being kind now she beat me up but other than that I am held to a higher standard and in fact Cal one of the things that uh, I've done here for all 24 years that we've been here, Paula if Paula's in town which is certainly most of the time she always sits in the very front row where I can see her and I've always had her do that for one reason, just one reason. She has to be at all. She, she didn't have to be, but she wants to be here for all three services. Paula's in church more than anybody I know. But if I look at Paula, one day I'm talking about godliness or godly men, and I look at Paula and she's got this disgusted look on her face. Paula cannot, she would not be a good poker player. Her face gives her away. My deal with the Lord is that all step down, I'll resign right then and there. If I'm a hypocrite in my own home, then I have no business standing in a pulpit trying to communicate to others. So that's because I'm held to a higher standard. James says that not many of you should speak or should seek the office of of a, a teacher, Bible teacher, because we're held to a stricter judgment or a stricter standard. The same thing is true for a mature Christian. He or she is held to a higher standard than a new Christian. For somebody who's been walking with the Lord for 10 years and they're still unwilling to forgive people that have hurt their feelings. Well, they're going to be judged more strictly. Not for salvation, but the judgment of works. So yes, pastors are held to a higher standard. It is a tragedy, Cal, that there are so many pastors who think nothing of that, we see pastors getting in trouble committing all kinds of sin, um abusing the sheep um, it, 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 fleecing the sheep, you know getting wealthy off of the backs of the people that God's asked them to care for, regarding whether or not we encounter more spiritual warfare I don't know I really don't know I mean it sounds very uh preachable to say, "Oh yeah, pray for me because I'm under spiritual attack and and we Like everybody, we fall under times of spiritual attack. But the idea is what we're really accountable to do is to have a mature walk with Jesus to understand that as we keep short counts with the Lord as it regards our sin, as we walk with Jesus, that he's the one who's doing the fighting for us. So yeah, we are under spiritual attack just like regular people are, but we're supposed to know how to deal with it. By that, I mean we lay it at the feet of Jesus. Uh, Cal, in my own life, um, um, I'm I'm less aware of the spiritual warfare, um, say, while I'm preaching a message. There are times when I'll be sensitive to the fact that there seems to be a lot of spiritual interference, and usually when that happens here, um, that spiritual interference is out in the audience. I, I, I can sense that God is really speaking to people, and and I, I can f- literally feel the presence of the enemy here, trying to keep people from turning to God. Um, uh, so so I, I I don't mean spiritual warfare in that sense. Uh, I have horrible nightmares. Uh, I'm I sleep. I need sleep, but there's just so many times when my sleep isn't restful at all because of these horrible horrible, horrible nightmares, and that happens a lot on the weekends. Um, and, uh, I don't think that's a coincidence, um, but the Lord is always, um, sufficient to sort of pull me through. So I hope that makes sense to you. But, uh, I think sometimes pastors who, um, try to gain sympathy for the spiritual warfare they're under, I think that's a, a lot of times pride, you know, because I'm so anointed, the devil wants to kill me. He wants to kill all of us. So I hope that makes sense to you. Here's a question from Amy, and I can hear your heart on this one, Amy. How do I deal with issues like abortion? I'm so brokenhearted that I can barely function. Amy, how do I say this? I I want you to to always keep your heart this tender for issues like this, for people. um, Just keep your heart tender towards sin but you also have to toughen up. And by that I mean, the only thing that we can do, the only power that we have, is when we encounter people that we can share Jesus with. We can't stop abortion. That ship has sailed, and and uh, it wouldn't matter if the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade. There's still going to be abortion. People want to sin, They don't want to suffer consequences for their sin. And innocent babies being murdered uh, is not too high a price to pay for them. It's easier just to to pretend like it's not a baby at all. But we know better. So the way you deal with an an issue like abortion is that when people are in, in your life and they're considering abortion, then you can pray for them, you can talk to them, you can advocate for their unborn child. It doesn't mean you should go to abortion clinics and protest. It doesn't mean that you should make the goal of your life eliminating Planned Parenthood. It means the only way you can carry this tender heart with you fruitfully is to get so close to Jesus that he shares your brokenheartedness. But we've got to grow up spiritually, Amy, so that we don't obsess over things that we can't do anything about. If I was a Supreme Court justice, my answer might be different, but I'm a pastor. You're a Christian. And any time you find yourself barely functioning then you're quenching the work the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through you. So this is one of those things. Keep your heart tender. Unnecessarily necessarily that means your heart is going to hurt. It's going to be broken a lot. But that just makes you like Jesus. That's one of the ways, Amy, that we can share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Jesus' heart was broken. Jesus wept. He wept bitterly. So, when these issues paralyze you, remember that his heart is bigger than yours. And get so close to him that you're in touch, you're in connection with his power. But you simply cannot let an issue that you can do nothing about other than pray keep you from serving the Lord. That's an enemy wants to minimize any work that the Lord wants to do in you or through you. Every day, what about me, Lord? What about today? And if your heart is broken, Jesus will somehow take your hand and he'll say, it's okay, my heart is broken too, let's walk together. So Amy, stay tender-hearted, but toughen up. 340-9585 Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Vince says, "My family believes in oneness theology. Are they saved?" Vince, that's another question that's impossible to answer without knowing your family and knowing what role they have in oneness churches. You know, oneness um, theology is is uh, Jesus is God. He is the Father. He's the Son. He's the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's also called Jesus only. Um, you'll find people say, well, what name do you baptize in? If it's not in the name of Jesus, then you're not saved kind of thing. Uh, they are Pentecostal typically uh, in their practice, in their style. They are legalistic uh, as most Pentecostal excesses are. Um, but here's the important part. Um, if they've got the wrong Jesus then they don't have the Jesus that can save. So the doctrine of oneness theology is heresy. Now, does that mean that everybody who is in a oneness church knows what the doctrine is? Of course not. We teach the Bible verse by verse here, Vincent. I can promise you not everybody who's going to be here on Sunday uh, knows what our doctrine positions are, nor do they care. Uh, it is possible to be very naive. It's possible to be uh, duped. It's possible to to have such a shallow understanding of of, uh, of your salvation that, that you, you can't discern between the different doctrines, and, and it's possible that you're still saved. But here's what I can say. It's impossible to be saved and stay in oneness teaching. It is a heresy. And though they say Jesus and they claim to honor Jesus, Jesus said, if you don't have the Father, you don't have the Son. Jesus didn't say, if you don't have me, you don't have me. If you don't have the Spirit, you're none of His. Jesus understands the workings of the Trinity. And one the theology is certainly a dangerous, dangerous theology, there are some really famous so-called Christian pastors who are oneness types, and I think for those people willfully teaching heresy, I can't see how they could be saved. You say, well, well, maybe they're duped too, or they've been led astray. Well, you know, when you're standing up with an open Bible and you're teaching people, you better be rightly representing the Lord. Or I'd say the same thing, Vince, about prosperity teachers and others who are distorting the character and the nature of God certainly possible to be in a prosperity church and be saved. People don't know any better because they're not taught. But the people that are spreading those heresies, woe to them is what Jesus would say. And he says, how can God be a God of love and wrath at the same time? How can anyone love a God who flooded the earth, killing everybody, and then scares you with hell? Annie, in this case, um, you just don't know him. You just don't know him. God is a God of love. We know that because he gave his only son. Imagine God gave his son. He watched his son die for you, Annie. That's how much he loves you. You Now, he's a God of wrath because he has to be. The God of our Bible is a God of holiness and justice. How could you love a God who wouldn't judge the wicked? Can you imagine going to heaven and finding out that Nero was there or Adolf Hitler was there? Imagine getting to heaven and find out that... Paul and I talked about fathers abusing daughters in this culture. Can you imagine getting to heaven and finding out that those child abusers were in heaven... I want you to think about that, because if God's not a God of justice, if there is no wrath, no penalty for sin, then we're all lost. So he has to be a God of love and a holy God of wrath at the same time. Regarding loving a God who flooded the earth, killing everybody, any He flooded the world because people sinned against him. He had to judge them. And because he saved one family, I'm talking about him tonight, Noah. The rest of us have been born. And we have the freedom to make a choice between accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and escaping God's wrath. He didn't have to do that. He did it because he loved us. If we don't make that choice, the only other choice is an eternity separated from God. And that's what we call hell. We're not scaring people with hell. We're just telling them the truth. We are born eternal beings. The moment we take our first breath, we're going to live somewhere forever. And there's only two options, with God or without him. With him we call heaven. Without him we call hell. As to God scaring people with hell, wouldn't you want to be made aware of the future when danger was ahead? I mean, we see street signs now. We've got these apps with GPS. Every time we drive to a place, uh, and and there's going to be a, a, a an accident, or there's some reason, a lady on our new car, says uh, there is an accident on um, highway so-and-so. They're warning us so we can avoid it. Well, that's what hell is. We're warning people. So, Annie, I want you to look at the God of love who loved you so much that he sent his only son, and all you have to do is believe in him and you will escape eternity in hell. Let's go to our only phone call of the day. We've got Eric online. Erica, thanks for holding Erica. You're on the air. Hi, Papa. Hi, how are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. Good to hear from you. Uh so um yesterday I was at Walmart and this guy came over to me and he asked if I uh, if he had, a, if I had a few minutes, because he was working on a project for his church, and uh, he started to talk about how there is a mother God, not just God the Father, and uh, I told him that I only believe in God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no mother, and he supported his, this claim by reading Genesis one twenty seven, which says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. After reading this, he said that male is created after God and female after mother God. I I knew this was like totally (laughs) wrong, but I didn't really know how to respond because I was like, I was like, I was totally thrown off by this claim. It's It's not anything new, Erica. Thank you for that. We're coming up against the end of the program, so let me answer this quickly. We're... Uh, it, it's not anything new. And if you read carefully, it just says, in his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's just a statement that God was responsible for creating Adam first and then Eve. It doesn't mean that God made them male and female in his image because only God, God is only referred to in male terms. So the idea here between being made in his image refers to two things, just two things. It means that, like God, we have the capacity to choose. We have to choose our own destiny. God chose us, and in contrast, we have to choose Him. The second thing it means to be made in His image is that that we're going to live forever. I said that to, to the previous question with with Annie. Uh, we're going to live somewhere forever, and, and we have to make that choice where it's going to be. We don't get to just live and then cease to be the moment we were created, then we are going to live somewhere forever and we have to make the choice where it is. So there's no mother God. You're absolutely right. Um, again, this isn't new and this is, believe it or not, getting more and more popular on college campuses and stuff because, uh, the, the women in particular want to believe that, that, uh, that, there is a mother God, uh, the worship of mother God, mother earth, um, Venus and Diana and all of the other so-called gods has been going on from the very beginning of time, Erica. So hold your guns. You know who God is, and you were absolutely right. That was a great, great. Uh, he can go to lead a lot, leap a logic. Well, Mother God created her in, in her image, but not so. So, Erica, thanks very much. I appreciate the call. You know, uh, I don't know if I have time to tell a quick story. Quick. Quick story. Uh, uh, Paul and I were at a car wash one time years ago. And uh, the, the lady there knew that who we are, what we do. And she said, I'm mad at your God. Whoever she is. And I said, no, my God is a, is a he. Well, how do you know we, we got into this? I don't have time to tell the story after all. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful weekend. Go to church and Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Serve somebody. Pray for somebody. Lord willing, I'll see you Monday on AM, on AM 630, The Word. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arball. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com.